Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this lecture, which is interestingly titled, Same Bed, Different Dreams. My name is Ruth Katmuri. I'm the co-director of the Asia Research Center. And a special welcome to our speaker this evening, Mr. Malcolm Turnbull. Ms. Turnbull has been involved in an amazing range of professions, from journalism to law to investment banking and setting up a technology firm. These experiences, no doubt, contribute to his strong and capable leadership in his current involvement as an MP in the Australian Parliament. My knowledge of Australia is very limited, and it's limited to two M's. One M is media, and the second is migration. ABC started becoming very popular in Madras, much more than any American broadcasting corporation way back in the late 80s. And in recent years, Australia has become very popular for the filming of Bollywood movies. And on migration also, even way back in the late 1980s, there was a huge new wave of migration of young people going to Australia. And several of my classmates, as well as former students from Madras, are happily settled in Australia. And this was also facilitated because the process of migration itself that Australia had for giving visas was so um, systematic that it made the process so easy compared to the random and unpredictable processes that various other countries had in those years. And in recent years, of course, the UK has been trying to, uh, is, has also implemented the same point-based system um, for visas of people coming to the UK. And more so in recent years, the interactions between Australia and Asia have been growing steadily. And now I hand over to Mr. Turnbull to speak to us about a view from Australia on Asia's rise. Well, thank you very much, Ruth. Now, let me start off by thanking the London School of Economics for inviting me to speak here this evening. I didn't attend this university, a, a fault, no doubt, but I feel very much at home here, thanks to many stimulating hours listening to the podcasts of these lectures. Uh, listening to a talk from the LSE and, above all, the discussion that follows it while cycling around Lake Burley Griffin before work in Canberra is informative, but above all, therapeutic, a calm and rational contrast to the furious discord of Australian politics in 2011. Now, today I want to give an Australian perspective on the biggest economic change in the world today, the rise of China and following it, India. This is a massive realignment of economic and in due course political and strategic power at a speed and on a scale the world has never seen before. I've entitled the talk hopefully intriguingly enough to get people to come, which seems to have worked, uh, same bed, different dreams, which was a phrase I first heard, it's often used to describe the, the American-Chinese relationship, in fact there's a book of that title not so long ago, but I first heard it when I was putting together a zinc mine in Herbei province in the early 90s, and um, rather uh, frustrated by the contractual negotiations, the joint venture negotiations, and um, one of my Chinese colleagues uh, uh, you know, made reference to that, I think Tong Chong Yi Mong, roughly, the Chinese here can correct my pronunciation, 
but same bed, different dreams. Uh, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a rather cynical expression, but the important message, I think, and this is what I'm hoping to deal with and we can talk about later, is obviously there'd be nothing more boring than being in the same bed with the same dreams. That would be dull. But the important thing is when you are in the same bed, metaphorical or otherwise, with someone with different dreams, A, to know what those to know that those dreams are different, and B, to have an insight into what they are. And in many respects, that is a question of empathy. Now, I'm going to speak mostly about China tonight because of its size and economic importance, but India, is, its growth is on a similar but different trajectory, maybe 15 years behind. And I, I also want to emphasise that I am not doing what I've criticised other people for doing and ignoring the fact that in Asia there, are, there is enormous growth in a, in a whole range of other critically important economies, most notably the largest uh, of the others, uh, which is Indonesia, as well as very advanced economies such as Japan, South Korea and Singapore, and their stories are as fascinating and extraordinary as China's, but it's the scale of, of what's happening in China and later India that is so significant. Now, by any measure, China's growth has been extraordinary. From 1980 to 2010, its economy has grown 18 times, a, uh, an annual average of 10%. It has been the world's second largest economy since 2002 in purchasing power parity terms, and according to the IMF's forecasts, will overtake the United States in 2016. Others argue it has already done so. No less impressive is the change in China's share of the global total for some key indicators of progress between the early 90s and the late 2000s. I'll just run through a couple of them. Its population, a share of the global population, has actually declined from 22 to 20 percent. Steel production has increased from 12 to 39 percent. Foreign reserves from 3 to 22 percent. Resident-owned patent filings from 1 to 15 percent. Internet users from zero to 15 percent. And poverty has declined. That's to say the share of the global pool of people living on less than $1.25 a day has declined from 38 to 15 percent. Now, these are extraordinary changes. And notably, in the context of climate change, carbon emissions, it's the share thereof, has increased from 11 to 20 percent. Now, India's reforms started after those in China, and its re-emergence as a global economic power has been more gradual. Still, from 1980 to 2010, India's GDP has increased six times, an annual average of 6%. Since the mid-2000s, the average growth has risen to 8%, and this year, India will pass Japan to be the third largest economy in purchasing power parity terms. India has industrialised more slowly and trades less than China, in part reflecting the legacy of licence Raj distortions, such as import restrictions and rules forbidding large-scale manufacture of many goods to preserve or protect smaller producers. Trades expanded as a share of output since 1991, but growth has also come from domestic demand and a very large services sector, which now accounts for 6% of GDP and roughly a quarter of exports. But let's look at the big numbers. Between them, China and India have added 2.5 billion consumers 
and 1.3 billion producers to the global market since they opened their economies. That opening and that rapid growth has led to gigantic shifts in the distribution of global production. In 1990, which is not very long ago in the lifetimes of everybody in this room, Western Europe and North America produced 49% of world GDP. But by 2030, their share will almost halve to 26%, according to William Buter at Citigroup. And his figures are in line with pretty much with everyone else's. Emerging Asia, that's to say Asia ex Japan, produced 14% of world GDP in 1990, but will more than triple its share to 44% in 2030, according to the same author. Now, these are much bigger shifts in the location of global production than were recorded after the Industrial Revolution, and they are occurring over much shorter time frames. So it's the speed and the scale. Those two are quite unique. Since the turn of the century, of course, strong growth in emerging Asia has also been matched in the rest of the developed world. Now, let's now reflect. Let's look at one side of the bed. Let's reflect on the view from Beijing. More than almost any other country, Chinese leaders draw strength and guidance from the lessons of history. Deng Xiaoping reached back to the trade and exploration of Admiral Zheng He in the 15th century, when in 1979 he began to open China to foreign trade. He reminded the hardliners in his own party that when China had engaged with the world it had been strong, when in the 16th century it closed off from the world, this began a decline that ended with 150 years of humiliating invasion, colonization and exploitation by stronger nations. The world may be amazed by China's rise, but the Chinese recognize this as very much a return to the natural order of things. In fact, the historic national accounts constructed by the late Angus Madison of the OECD tell us that from antiquity until the middle of the 19th century, several decades into the Industrial Revolution, China and India were the two largest global economies, accounting for between 45 and 50 percent of the world's output over most of the previous 18 centuries. There are few nations, in fact, with a sense of cultural continuity and exceptionalism that rival China's, but none rival its scale. China sees itself as a 3,000-year-old culture for almost all of history, the world's largest and strongest country. So while elegantly clad young Chinese businessmen and women may appear to have little in common with Mao's boiler-suited revolutionaries, the economic success of modern China, whether manifested in gleaming new cities, fast trains and freeways, or indeed in tanks and stealth fighter jets, is the fulfilment of Mao's proud, burst, proud boast in 1949 from the top of Tiananmen. Zhongguo Renmin, Zhangqi Lailu, that Chinese people have stood up. And so they have, and we are now all taking notice. But in the midst of this, great pride and great achievement are great risks and challenges. The Communist Party of China presents as a modern political party Indeed, they have sent official delegations to our Liberal Party conferences in Australia. And the Liberal Party in Australia, I might add, is the centre-right party in Australia. Now, this is something which would, I suspect, have made Sir Robert Menzies and the cold warriors of his day turn in their graves. But China is no democracy, and the dominance of the party depends on a social contract, 
You the people let us run the country and we the party will deliver rising living standards. Pragmatically, as the governor of Liaoning once observed to me, just because the majority of the people want to do something doesn't mean it's right. Now, notwithstanding the NYSE listings for the standard bearers of the Chinese economy at home and abroad, the big state-owned enterprises, or SOEs, are led by men and women appointed by the Cultural Organisation Department of the Communist Party. Now, while infallibility is not a virtue claimed by democracies or any other political system, it does offer a most effective way of letting off steam. Throwing the rascals out, even if they are replaced by more rascals, is better done with ballots than bullets. And so integral to every aspect of government policy in China, without that democratic safety valve, whether viewed from Zhongnan High or from a truck, spot, truck stop in Xinjiang, is a, conserve to, a concern to preserve political stability. Tens of millions of Chinese died in political disorders only a few generations ago. The revolution itself, the Great Leap Forward, and the resulting famine, and the Cultural Revolution. Chinese don't need to imagine the consequences of civil disorder. Anyone over 40 has lived through it and can feel themselves lucky to have done so. China also recognises the blackest period of its history resulted from weakness that was exploited by stronger nations. And I leave aside for a moment the brutal invasion and occupation of China by the Japanese in the 1930s. But just reflect on the Opium Wars, which began in 1839. In its search for something other than silver to exchange for Chinese tea and other goods, the British East India Company hit on the great idea of selling opium to China. When the Chinese government of the day cracked down on drug traffic and tra trafficking and destroyed the opium, the British response was to send in the gunboats to insist Chinese ports remain open to free trade in British drugs and the drug traffickers be compensated for their losses by the now utterly humiliated government of China. It is as if, it is as if the Medellin cartel sent gunboats up the Potomac to shell the capital until the Americans disbanded the Drug Enforcement Agency. It's worth reflecting on that. That is, a live, that is a live memory in Chinese consciousness, a monstrously unjust humiliation which came as a consequence of being weak. Now, China's leaders are also keenly aware of the need to ensure gains from growth are more evenly spread across society. China has gone from being an egalitarian society in the sense that almost everyone was poor to one where a large and prosperous middle class and highly developed industry shares a nation with a lot of poor people. This is changing rapidly. Between 2005 and 2010 alone, 153 million Chinese were lifted out of poverty in five years, but enormous disparities still remain. At the same time, the middle class starts to wonder if the system's still working in their favour. Uh, industrial disputes are becoming more common, we've seen evidence of that, and there is, of course, a class of super wealthy who are genuine, generally perceived to have obtained their wealth by illicit means. Work by the economist Wang Xialu indicates only 50% of the income of the top tenth of income earners is reported. The rest is grey income. With not much of a welfare net, Chinese are big savers. 
and household consumption is extraordinarily low, extraordinarily low at 35% of GDP, down from just under 50% in 1984. Now, as Michael Pettis, the uh, Beijing University economist, has noted, and I, I think this is a, a key insight, this curious state of affairs is accompanied by what amounts to three additional implicit taxes on Chinese households. First, an undervalued exchange rate benefits exporters at the expense of consumers. Second, while labour productivity has tripled since 2000, real wages have only doubled. And third, negative real interest rates for depositors lead to an annual transfer of 5 to 7% of GDP from households to the government-owned banks, which in turn lend most of it to government-owned corporations, generally local government-owned corporations, too much of which is for ill-considered infrastructure projects or property speculation. Put another way, China's economic growth is being directed away from households and into investment, much of which is funded by subsidised policy lending, with the inevitable consequence of more and more bad loans held by Chinese banks. Now, the government is obviously aware of this, is endeavouring to uh, you know, let some of the steam out of this speculative bubble. <clears throat> You've seen the changes to capital requirements uh, recently, and of course you've seen the impact on the Chinese uh, stock market. But this is a very big issue, and the, there is, this is a point where the critics of China's uh, financial policies in the West would do well to focus in their rhetoric, instead of attacking China, we seem to be attacking China, to be making the point that these current arrangements, which of course disadvantage competing economies, particularly the undervalued exchange rate, also disadvantage Chinese households. And so there is a, a virtuous circle that can, in, the, in what should be a more nuanced dialogue about this, uh, that can be uh, taken up. Now, how does, how, does the, how does China change this? How do they deal with this? None of this is easy. You know, the problem with making economic changes without shocks is the one that affects politicians, whether they're in China or in a democracy like uh, Britain or Australia, because it's the short-term shocks that get you thrown out of office. The long-term gain is often overlooked because of the short-term pain. Uh, the one, how, how, do you, how do you change this? Well, one op opportunity, obviously, is to pay proper commercial interest rates, but that would have an impact on the borrowers which are state, mostly state-owned enterprises of one kind or another. Uh, the the other, uh, other opportunity, obviously, is to, is to revalue, and that's where so much pressure has been put on, but the vested interests of industry are as uh, loud there as they are everywhere else. Um, the problem, though, is that this is creating very significant imbalances. At the moment, private firms, which aren't getting the benefit of this policy lending, are all too often borrowing at 20 to 30 percent, often from you know, tycoons in Hong Kong, so that uh, they can stay in business while at the same time SOEs are able to build infrastructure and real estate development without regard to its economic utility. Now, finally, again looking at this side of the bed from Beijing, ref reflect on the environment. Over millennia, Floods and famines have seen off many an emperor, tangible evidence that he had lost the mandate of heaven. 
China faces some of the most severe environmental challenges in the world. Some are direct consequences of global warming, as the Himalayan glaciers melt, more water becomes available when it is not wanted in winter and less when it is in summer. At the same time, industrial pollution of the air and water is so severe that it is a political issue. What good is it to have a television or a car if you cannot breathe the air or drink the water? And China's ability to feed itself is threatened by diminishing water availability. This is particularly the case on the northern plain of China, which is largely irrigated using groundwater, which has been unsustainably extracted to a point where wells are running dry. Now, of course, you can desalinate water and you can pump it up from the Yangtze as they're doing, but that is too expensive for farming. I mean, remember, you can become a water expert with this one, uh, bit, of in one bit of insight. You know, a cubic, uh, cubic metre of water weighs a tonne, right? So water has a very low value to weight and volume. So it costs a lot to move around. And hence uh, the challenges for trying to deal with these issues with very expensive engineering projects. So if you look at those issues from Beijing's perspective, resource security, energy, minerals, and food itself are a growing preoccupation. The Chinese rush to acquire access to natural resources, including in Australia, <clears throat> is therefore entirely understandable. Rapidly growing demand for resources in China and elsewhere in emerging Asia is largely why in 2010 a quarter of all of our exports went to China and a third to China and India combined. And, as the, and the financial crisis, which began in 2007, eased after 2009 and now threatens to return, offers great opportunities for a cashed-up China to acquire as many premium resource assets around the world as it can, so it emerges with a global portfolio of sufficient scale and diversity to secure long-term, low-cost access to the minerals and the energy it needs. It would be quite reasonable, in my judgment, for Australia to deny Chinese enterprises the right to acquire Australian resources until such time as Australian firms had reciprocal rights in China. But it is, nonetheless, despite the lack of that reciprocity, in our interest to welcome Chinese capital that develops our resources while still taking a discriminating approach to bids for strategic resource assets by Chinese state-owned enterprises. <clears throat> Indignation in some quarters in China when Chinalco's takeover of Rio Tinto appeared likely to be blocked was quite unreasonable. China should respect the right of the Australian people to stand up for our national sovereignty too. So now let's look at the dreams on the other side of the bed. China represents a challenge to the United States which is utterly unique. Americans are imbued with a deep sense of their own exceptionalism. They have assumed that they'll always be the strongest, richest and cleverest nation on earth. Their birthright, they feel, has been to provide the benchmark in living standards, infrastructure, education and technology. Tom Friedman's latest book, That Used to Be Us, is an eloquent testimony to the growing sense of inadequacy Americans feel as they compare their country to China. Its title was inspired by President Obama in November last year when he said, it makes no sense for China to have better rail systems than us and Singapore having better airports than us. And we just learned that China now has the fastest supercomputer on earth. That used to be us. Well, it's not just President Obama having a Sputnik moment. Americans everywhere feel the core of their economy is being hollowed out. 
Their pessimism has a basis. 42,000 factories closed in the United States between 2001 and 2010. Five and a half million manufacturing jobs, about a third of the total, disappearing. China, in contrast, now makes more cars than the US and Japan combined, as well as the lion's share of many other familiar items we're all familiar with. Now, this sense of being outclassed by China is not limited to Americans. Those of you enjoying the London Tube, or indeed the very inadequate mass transit in Sydney, uh, check out the Shanghai subway, which didn't exist or it hadn't opened until 1995. In that time, the people of that city have built 420 kilometres of track in a system that carries close to 8 million people a day. I regret to say in my city of Sydney, which has been suffering from congestion and a need for better mass transit for many years, in that period we built a princely 13 kilometres of new track. <laughs> now, <clears throat> but I contend this, that we cannot blame, obviously, and we shouldn't blame uh, China or indeed Asia more broadly for our own choices. If bridges and roads and subways in our developed country are not in good repair, that is our problem. If our young people are leaving school unable to read and write, then that's another problem for us. Too often we ask ourselves the wrong question, why are we declining relative to China, when we should be asking, why are we not as good as we can be? Put another way, we should be less worried about relative decline and more concerned to address absolute decline. The fault, indeed, is in ourselves. Now, it is also becoming very clear that in the developed world, the rising tide of convergence and globalisation will not lift all boats and certainly not at the same rate. Michael Spence has pointed out recently that globalisation was seen as having a benign impact on the distribution of income in advanced economies. But that is now changing. It's becoming increasingly obvious that the advanced economies are not simply losing low-skill, low-wage jobs to, the emerging, to emerging Asia, but high-skill, high-wage jobs. Spence shows in some recent work of his that between 1990 and 2008, 97% of the 27 million jobs added in America were in the non-traded sector, 40% <clears throat> of them in government and healthcare. His work shows that in the barely growing traded sectors of the US economy, increasing opportunities at the top of the value chain for highly paid high-skilled workers were offset by much larger decreases in routine jobs as these functions are re relocating to emerging markets. Now, what we're seeing, of course, is that the traded sector is getting larger because anywhere a service can be transferred to customers as a stream of bits is fair game. So that difference between non-traded and traded is moving all the time and more is becoming traded. I mean, if you look at any standard uh, text in this area, and I'm sure you, many of you do this, um, people talk about retail as being a classic non-traded sector. I mean, a lot of the criticism of Japan's efficiency they say, look at the non-traded sectors, retail's inefficient because it's not traded. Well, how, what percentage of all of your retail purchases are online nowadays? I think retail is a traded sector as well. And so, one after another, 
whether it is analysts in the city, whether it is people analysing uh, you know, radiograms, it is, the traded sector is getting larger and larger. Now, this broad trend, which Spence identified in the US and I've just described, <clears throat> is evident in Australia too, and that notwithstanding the massive mining boom we've had. Employment in our country, in the non-traded sectors, has grown faster than in the traded industries. Both expanded, but with mining employment, thanks to Chinese demand, tripling over the decade, but more than offsetting job losses in manufacturing. So the similar trend, but the mining boom made up for some of it, made up for that, and so our traded sector grew, but at a much lower rate than, uh, than the non-traded sector. So what are we going to do about it? The key, if obvious, insight is that a converged global economy is much larger and much more competitive, but with many more opportunities. Within two decades, there'll be more middle-class consumers in Asia than there are in the rest of the world. The firms and the countries that will succeed in this brave new world will be the most efficient, the most innovative, the highest quality. For high-wage countries that seek to remain so, the pursuit of excellence was never more important. <clears throat> Our schools and universities in the West should be turning out the world's top students, not settling for middle of the pack, which is where one measure, the OECD's PISA study of comparative performance in secondary schooling, suggests many advanced countries find themselves. Now, while governments should be aware of picking individual companies as winners, creating environments which encourage research and development innovation and above all, the development and commercialisation of new technologies is absolutely critical. The Germans, I think, have shown the success of that perhaps better than anyone else in the developed world, focusing on advanced technology and manufacturing. And their slogan, Germany, land of ideas, fairly sums it up. And we should not imagine that China, India and the rest of emerging Asia are not doing the same thing. Just as Japan and then Korea targeted electronics as a national industrial priority. And interestingly, in Korea, just as a footnote, there's a lot of footnotes in this speech which you can read online if you're interested, but as an additional footnote, I mentioned how Deng Xiaoping had, had uh, disinterred Admiral Zheng He to support his uh, opening to the West line. Well, in Korea, uh, the, uh, the national, uh, another admiral, the, uh, their hero, Admiral Yi, I, I think, his name, um, who beat off the Japanese with the help of a very innovative turtle boat, uh, is now uh, used by, has been used by Korea, uh, not simply as a, another national hero who beat off a foe, but as a master of innovation. So you have across East Asia, you have these long dead admirals being, being uh, disinterred and used uh, to motivate their countries to deal with contemporary challenges. Um, now, in China, there is a very clear recognition, and you can see that on the ground, you can see that in the new five-year plan, that the nation will take the lead in green technology. While politicians in the West argue about whether or not climate change is real, particularly in America, in China, the world's largest emitter, billions are being invested in wind, solar, electric vehicles, and a host of other clean technologies. Now, like with so many other different political issues, climate change, long-term fiscal solvency, rather newsworthy at the moment, preparing for a more competitive world in which China and India are two of the three largest economies requires long-term thinking and leadership. 
leadership to persuade voters that rather than spend today, we should invest for a more prosperous tomorrow. Now, just as research, education and indeed infrastructure are long-term investors, so too there is a need in my country, Australia, to recognise our terms of trade windfall will not last forever. There's a view that it will, especially in Canberra, and that is dangerous complacency. <clears throat> in 2005, a shipload of iron ore paid for 2,200 flat-screen televisions from China. By 2010, that same shipload brought, bought 22,000 flat-screen televisions. That's the consequence of the terms of trade change. The iron ore became six times more valuable and the flat-screen TV's price dropped by two-thirds. Now, while hoping the good times will never end, a key focus for us in Australia surely must be a return to large fiscal surpluses and the establishment of a new sovereign savings fund along the line of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. So let us now turn, if I may, to the strategic balance and the strategic issue. Shifts in economic weight and military potential are a legitimate cause for anxiety, as the world's grim history from 1914 to the mid-20th century reminds us. A century ago, the rising economies were Germany, locked in a costly naval arms race with Britain, and Japan, to be joined in the 1920s by the Soviet Union. The guns of August of 1914 turned out to signal the start of more than three decades of military and economic catastrophe. Previous threats to more than a century of US economic primacy were not credible. The USSR of the late 1950s or Japan of the late 80s, these two alleged challenges, had economies only 40% as large. Yet this time the challenger is real. Most Americans appear utterly flummoxed by the swiftness of China's rise. As late as the 2004 US presidential race, for instance, China's economic rise barely rated a substantive remark from either candidate in three hours of debate over America's future, watched by a combined audience of 160 million. Economic anxiety, of course, has been felt before in America and Europe, rise of Japan, for example, but this time there is also strategic anxiety in the West, particularly in the US, reflecting a concern that China has a very different understanding of the way in which world affairs should be ordered. Now, while ever alert, we should not be alarmed, says Henry Kissinger, I agree with him, who argues China's well-developed and historic sense of its central place will make it a less outwardly assertive leading power than the United States. He contrasts missionary US exceptionalism based on an obligation to spread its values to every part of the world with China's lack of interest in claiming its institutions are relevant outside China. And indeed, it's important to note that China's growth in power, both economic and military, has not been matched by any expansionist tendencies beyond reuniting Taiwan. Indeed, very large territories in the northeast of China, taken by Russia under duress, this is the whole Amuskai region, including where Vladivostok is, these were taken uh, following the unequal treaties of Aigun in 1858 and Beijing in 1860, have not been left unresolved as a possible casus belli in years to come, but instead have been legitimised, the boundaries have been renegotiated and legitimised with very minor variations in new treaties signed only a few years ago. 
Now, the central role of trade in China's prosperity also argues for its rise to remain peaceful. China's trade was 55% of its GDP in 2010, the same as for Britain in the 1870s and five times larger than the role of trade in the US economy of the 1950s and 60s, when US economic dominance was greatest. China has more to lose than most uh, from any conflict that disrupts global economic flows. In my judgment, the best and most realistic strategic outcome for East Asia must be one in which the powers are in balance with each side, effectively able to deny the domination of the other. With its energy and resource security depending on long global sea lanes, it's hardly surprising that China would seek to enhance its naval capacity. Suggestions that China's recent launch of one aircraft carrier and plans to build another are signs of a new belligerence are wide of the mark. This is no time for another long telegram or suggestions of containment. China, unlike the Soviet Union, does not seek to export its ideology or system of government to other countries. It makes no sense for America or its allies to base long-term strategic policy on the contentious proposition that we are on an inevitable collision course with a militarily aggressive China. In that regard, I disagree with the underlying premise of the 2009 Australian White Paper that we should base our defence planning and procurement on the contingency of a naval war with China in the South China Sea. Prejudice is not a substitute for coolly rational analysis. And this is not a counsel for complacency, but our strategic response should be to hedge against adverse and unlikely future contingencies, as opposed to seeking to contain futilely in all likelihood a rising power. Of course, cool heads are required on all sides. China needs to be more transparent about its goals in the region and on the basis of that build confidence with its neighbours so that misunderstandings can be avoided. We in Australia have to adopt a clear-eyed appraisal of the strategic balance in East Asia. America is our closest ally, its institutions and democracy as close to us as indeed they are to those of the United Kingdom. When the mantle of the world's greatest power shifted from Britain to America, it shifted in our perspective from one family member to another. However, as China becomes the world's largest economy and in times a military rival, if not an equal, of the United States, we are presented with a nation whose institutions and cultures are very different to ours. Yet China is, as I have noted, our largest trading partner and in large measure responsible for our current prosperity. There is no need for Australia, <coughs> or indeed any other country in the region, to make a choice, some sort of Manichaean choice, between China and the United States. We have to recognise and respect what, from Chinese eyes, and indeed, the same comment can be made uh, some years uh, to come about India, we have to recognise what is effectively a return to situation normal, where these vast countries, representing such an extraordinary share, a large share of the world's population, acquire an economic clout and a leadership role that is commensurate with their population and the economic strength that they have. It's important also, I think, for us to recognise that there is the real prospect of global leadership being ceded in important areas 
by countries that fail to lead. Leaders must lead. Leadership vacuums will never last for very long. Uh, as you look at the politics in Washington DC today, as you look at the bitter partisanship there and the inability to agree on keeping the, you know, honouring, continuing to honour until at the 11th hour, inability to agree on uh, honouring the uh, nation's debt, a hopeless inability to agree on any action, uh, it would seem, at least congressionally, to deal with climate change. It is inevitable, and this is something Americans need to be very conscious of, that countries will start to look to China. Now, Australia and the United Kingdom, with their very close ties to the United States, I imagine will always uh, look first to Washington. But I don't think everybody else will. If China is able to show real leadership on these global issues, go from being, you know, as the Americans have told them, a responsible stakeholder to becoming, to taking a leadership role commensurate with their own power, then the United States may find that their role, their position, has been challenged more than they would ever imagine, not simply because of China's growth in economic might, but because of their inability to lead themselves. So I look forward, thank you very much for uh, inviting me here tonight, and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Mr. Turnbull. One of the reasons I agreed to chair was because I agree with most of what you say. So I'm not going to ask you the difficult questions, Good. but I'm going to rely on the audience here to ask you the difficult questions. I'm going to start by asking Professor Attar Hussain, who is our expert on China, to start uh, his, give his comments or questions. Right. It's not a difficult or provocative question, but Australia is a near neighbor of Asia. I mean, it's not part of Asia, but it's probably more directly affected what's happening in Asia. Mm. So could you go a bit more detail of what should be the Australian attitude to the change <coughs> configuration in Asia? Because the rest of the world may have quite a lot to fear from China being the workshop of the world, but Australia being treasure house of resources has everything to actually benefit from China being the, the workshop of the world. Well, look, I, <coughs> firstly, let me say this question of whether Australia is part of Asia or not is, a, is I, I, I think, a, um, uh, uh, really a semantic one, if I may say so, with great respect, Professor. Um, you know, Asia notionally encompasses everything from Chuhotka, right at the tip of Siberia, um, right down to the... Um, uh, to the eastern side of the Bosphorus. So, you know, what, what is... Uh, the, the geography is so vast, uh, it is, um, it's, it's sort of meaningless. And when people talk about Asia, they're generally talking about a part of Asia. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about really the emerging markets here tonight. I'm not... The, the big emerging economies, um, less so about um, Siberia or or uh, Central Asia, for example. So I, I think, <clears throat> I think Australia, uh, Australia's in a, a rather unique position, as you say. We, we suffer from the same problems that developed countries do in terms of the 
export of jobs, the bleeding of jobs to uh, other, to the growing, fast-growing emerging countries. And so the Michael Spence problem, and there's a lot more of on this if you, any of you are interested in the in written text of the speech, um, that, that's a problem we face too. It, it is offset to some extent by the, the mining boom. But nonetheless, there is a lot of hardship. You know, we, we talk in Australia about a patchwork economy. There are some sectors that are doing it pretty tough. If you are in the tourism business, you know, it's, it isn't easy with the Australian dollar at parity with the US dollar. Now, not so long ago, it was at a dollar ten. Um, it's back down to 95 or 96 today. But these very, this very high exchange rate creates a Dutch disease problem. So, so we have to, we, you know, we face similar problems, but differently. In terms of in, engaging with Asia, I think Australia's great, one of its greatest strengths is that it is a, gen, a genuinely multicultural society. We have one of the largest percentages of foreign-born people in our nation of any country in the world. Uh, the diversity in the Australian community is enormous. Uh, our multicultural society is by and large, and overwhelmingly, I would say, very harmonious, and we've been pretty successful with it. I think that gives us a great strength and connection uh, with, with all of the countries in Asia. And, and to give you a sort of a, a practical example of that, I, as, as some of you may know, I used to work for Goldman Sachs. I was a partner of Goldman Sachs uh, in years past. And when I joined the firm, they told me that they hired more Australians than they could ever use in the Australian business. And I said, that's interesting, why do you do that? And they said, well, they make very good you know, employees in a big multinational business like Goldman. Because coming out of a very multicultural society, Australians are, by and large, very comfortable pretty much wherever they are in the world. They're used to working with people from different backgrounds. I think that is a terrific uh, advantage uh, that we have. Um, we'll take three questions at a time. Mm. So, uh, the gentleman there, and the gentleman here. One, any? Yeah, we'll start with the two questions. Um, Malcolm, the. Uh, Sorry, where are you? Oh, there you are. Good. Over here. The three, um, the three, the three countries you've uh, expressed the greatest praise for in your uh, talk at uh, China, which is. Uh, a one-party socialist state with a capitalist sector, rather large one, but a uh, yeah. great deal of government direction. Germany, which is a, a democratic socialist state with a large capitalist sector and a great deal of collective control and ownership. And Norway, which is a socialist state with uh, high taxes used to pay its sovereign wealth fund. So it's, it seems to me that uh, what's really encoded in your speech is a is a rejection, really, of the whole tradition of Anglo-American laissez-faire capitalism <laughs> um, that's been spruced by the party you're a member of for the past 25 years. Um, I think, I think so, that's... So, mm. uh, I know that you're a, a relative of George Lansbury, who was the, the most left-wing leader of the Labor Party, uh, of the British Labor Party. It seems that some of the genes have transferred through. <laughs> When will, you when will you join uh, your comrade Harold Holt in, in joining the Chinese Communist Party? Well, I think um, I'd have to say that takes uh, postmodern interpretation to its peak. Um, 
look, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, it's a, I don't think you're, as, I, as Tony Jones would say on Q&A in Australia, I'll take that as a comment, not a question. Uh, but the, um, I would, um, I, look, I, I think there are, you know, there are important, there are important lessons to learn from everyone. I, I don't think you can, you, you can't readily translate the political system from one country to another, as I think many people have found to their cost. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the issue of, um, of saving, you know, for the end of the boom um, is not a particularly socialist one. I mean, indeed, we in government established a sovereign wealth fund, although with a limited purpose. This is the future fund <coughs> that was established to uh, fund uh, the hitherto unfunded pension obligations to public servants that were not um, uh, you know, based on the contributions. They were defined benefit uh, entitlements that were paid out of you know, government revenues in years to come. And so that was an example of, uh, of a very wise decision on our part by a rather, you know, by a centre-right government. So uh, I don't know whether that made John Howard a socialist um, uh, or indeed his support um, for various environmental policies, whether that made him a greenie. I wasn't quite going to go as far as the previous speaker, but interesting, you almost called for a trade war on natural resources and resource protectionism uh, when you were talking about Australia looking after its national interests and linking that to climate change and leadership. Why shouldn't Australia lead on climate issues and emissions reductions and why shouldn't we put emission barriers in place if other countries we export to don't have appropriate climate policies? Okay, well, there's a bunch of questions there. Um, do you want me to answer this now or do... Or do or... Yeah, I'd like to add to that question. So okay, you mentioned yeah. about leadership. Yeah, and yeah, you're sure. saying Australia or the Anglo-Saxon world will look to America for leadership. And I'd like to add to this gentleman's question, saying why can't Australia take the lead? Well, I think Australia does take the lead in a, in a range of areas. Uh, you know, we've been, we have been uh, leaders in, obviously, in terms of the environment. Uh, you know, we have a commitment to cutting our emissions by 5% from 2020, from, sorry, 2000 levels by 2020, which doesn't sound like very much, but because of the population growth and the growth of the economy, it's actually very big in uh, change from business as usual. There's a very lively debate in Australia, as you know, about how that should be done, whether it should be done through a cap-and-trade system, which used to be the Liberal Party's policy and the Labor Party's policy now is only the Labor Party's policy. That's the issue I basically lost the leadership of the party over, uh, as some of you may recall, the end of 2009. But there is a bipartisan commitment to that cut in emissions. Um, I think, but getting back to the point you raised about some sort of resource war, um, there's, there's no question of any war or, or conflict here. I mean, the, uh, you know, for an, an, any government is entitled to set the rules about on which, the, which define the basis on which its resources may be accessed and extracted. I mean, that is a, that's fundamental. I mean, if you, if, you, if you can't control that, what sovereignty do you have? So, you know, I, there are very few countries that are as open to foreign investment as Australia. I can't think of one that is more open. Uh, so, but there is nonetheless uh, an important uh, point to, to make that the, that that, and this is really the point I made about the Chinalco Rio takeover, which of course wasn't determined, was determined on other grounds. But I spoke at the time 
about the, the legitimacy of Australia saying, well, we recognise that the state-owned corporations of other countries are not like a private company. They are agencies of the state, and we are entitled to take a view that large, strategically important resources, we do not want to be controlled by an, a foreign government. And I think that's a, you know, most, uh, you know, try a, you know, imagine if a, it's inconceivable there'd be an Australian government-owned mining company, but a, imagine if a, a foreign government-owned mining company wanted to buy natural resources in China. It's just unthinkable. So, you know, that attitude, if that's reasonable, then so is uh, the approach we've taken. But it's a very discriminating one. A lot of Chinese SOEs have invested in Australian resources, but we've reserved the right to be discriminating about it. Two questions here, and there's one. Is that a lady right at the back? You can't see. I only see a hand. You go first. Um, I was just wondering. You were saying that Australia seems to be well embedded in the kind of triangle of um, U.S.-English relations, etc. We're not really going to leave that to jump into bed with the Chinese, if you will. Um, why do you hold that view so strongly and why can Australia and, and other middle powers for that uh, extent that may have Western roots not take a path akin to um, Tito's Yugoslavia between the East and the West and the Cold War? Well, I, I just, you know, I, I hear what you say, but I think the, the uh, ties of uh, kinship, culture, tradition between the countries of the Anglosphere are very, very strong, you know, and, and they you know, very, very deep. But that, that's not, you know, it, this is the point I'm making, it's not an either-or. You know, we don't have to, some people have argued that Australia will have to make a choice between China and America. I don't think, I do not see China as a territorial expansionist country. I mean, let, let's be quite clear about this. China will, China will, you know, exercise itself to assert its new status as a global power in its region. It will, but I don't think it will seek to impose some kind of Monroe Doctrine in East Asia, not least because of what that would mean for other very important powers in that region, including Japan. But nonetheless, it will seek to assert itself as the great power that it is, and recognising that uh, is very important. Recognising and understanding that is very important. That's why the history is so important. You know, the, the, the lack of awareness that many people have uh, in the West about Chinese history and the implications of it and what it means for China is extraordinary. So it's important to understand that. Um, in terms of um, the, the connections between our two countries, they are genuinely very, very deep. Uh, you know, I, I don't... I, I think that there is a... The rate, the pace of which... Uh, Chinese-Australian relations have developed is, is quite extraordinary. Now, it has, it's something that has to be developed, has to be handled, uh, um, you know, with a degree of um, diplomacy. You know, Kevin Rudd speaks really good Mandarin. You know, very good. His, his Chinese is excellent. Everyone says that. Um, but I don't think it was a great diplomatic coup to go to Peking University and give a speech in flawless Mandarin attacking the human rights record of the Chinese government. Uh, that, that is a legitimate issue to raise with the Chinese government. In, in, but you imagine if 
a Chinese leader came to the Australian National University in Canberra and gave a speech in flawless, Chinese, flawless English uh, condemning Australia's treatment of its Aboriginal population. You know, that would, however legitimate the criticism was, it would get a lot of backs up. So it's important, you know, for there to be a bit of uh, uh, diplomacy there. So, but, but generally the, generally the relationship, I think, is, uh, is a very good one. But it's, you know, it, it's something we've got to be, th this is an issue, you know, there are no easy fix answers to any of this. We are talking about an extraordinary transformational change. You know, we are talking about, we've mostly talked about China, but you can make similar comments about India. Two gigantic countries, huge economies, that played very little part in the global economy, you know, 20, say 30 years ago, certainly, are now about to be the biggest and second biggest economies in the world, certainly the biggest and the third biggest at the very least. Now, that is a, you know, that's a remarkable transformation and it's happened in no time at all. Um, uh, I, I uh, lived in Australia, went to school there, had a great time. But uh, some of your comments, and I don't know if I'm veering slightly off topic, but you said that Australia has a very harmonious multicultural society, etc. Now, when I was there, um, I witnessed the Sydney riots, uh, the attacks on international students. Obviously, I know of the great uh, speech by John Howard, we will decide who comes into this country and the manner in which they do. Yeah. Uh, Pauline Hanson being elected as a member of your party. Now, I noticed there's a very strong... Well, she wasn't elected. She actually, she actually uh, ended up being, um, you know, being uh, dumped from the Liberal Party and ended up, you know, running for Parliament in her own right, as you know. She made it to Parliament and she gave the speech about the Asian nation of Australia. Sure. Yeah, okay. Now, my question is, in times of boom, relatively, there is multiculturalism, or at least relations between people from different backgrounds are harmonious. Uh, but there's a very strong nationalist undercurrent to Australia. How, I mean, how do you square these two off, or how do you situate that within a multicultural context? I don't understand what would happen if there's a bust, if there's an economic downturn. Well, look, I, I mean, I, I, you know, obviously I've lived in Australia for a long time. Um, I, I think it's pretty clear, yes, there is, there is, there is friction from time to time. Uh, the Pauline Hanson one nation phenomenon uh, rose and fizzled. And the fact is that both major parties took a stand against it. And, you know, she is, she has not been a credible political figure uh, for a very long time. Uh, it's being charitable, being courteous. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, as far as the, those, uh, the riots you mentioned in Cronulla, that, that was appalling. Um, and, but there's been enormous work done in that community and elsewhere to ensure that nothing like that ever happens again. Um, I think you're always going to get these tensions, right? There's no question about that. But what is remarkable is how harmonious it is nonetheless. So, you know, you've got to, you, you've got to um, I think, recognise you know, we have, a, we have a city of Sydney where over 30% of the people were not even born in Australia. And, you know, they come from every part of the world. I mean, the only country in the world, to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that has a higher percentage of immigrants in its population is Israel. 
and the vast bulk of those immigrants are Jewish. They've got that in common. In Australia, our immigrants come from every corner of the world. We have a much higher percentage of foreign-born people in Australia than the United States does, and they call themselves, they think they're a multicultural society. Doesn't, not a patch on Australia. So, you know, don't, don't uh, undersell, well, I certainly won't undersell our achievement, and you shouldn't undersell it either. Were you, were you part of this in some way, or were you there, or when it happened? Were you in Australia when some of these incidents happened? I also think some of these incidents, you can't clap with one hand. So I think it's sometimes uh, it's also how some of the students themselves who migrate behave also does play a part in some of the incidents. And I also think some of these incidents are kind of isolated or small events which the media might... Yeah, but if we went through tougher economic times, yes, I think they, I think they would. I'm, I can't see any reason why, why they would be. I mean, we'll, if if we went into a severe recession, uh, you know, uh, I don't anticipate that happening. Um, uh, notwithstanding the very poor government we have at the moment, <laughs> uh, sort of have to throw that in. Uh, the, um, but the, I, um, I don't, I don't anticipate. Uh, that sort of problem. Look, I'll give you. I'll give you a view. I'll give you a view. But this is, might be something you can reflect on. I think that one of the great advantages Australia has got, and indeed America has too, that while we are not lamentably yet a republic, nonetheless <laughs> we have a republican ethos in this sense that we define our nationhood by reference to shared political values. Australians are not defined by a particular skin colour, religion, cultural background, ethnicity. If you say, what does an Australian look like? They look like anyone in this room, any, anyone in this room and many others. You know, we are genuinely uh, very diverse. Now, there are some countries in the world where that is just not the case. You know, I don't want to run through a list and offend people, but you think about it. You know, there, I mean, if I, if I had lived, if I was, for whatever reason, a fifth generation resident of Japan, would I be regarded as Japanese, even if my Japanese was absolutely flawless? Of course I wouldn't. There are many countries where, and there are, you know, different degrees of this, but I think the accessibility of a country like ours, because of that way in which we define national identity is very amenable to the sort of multicultural society we have. And it's really, I, I tell you, I think this is one of our greatest strengths. And I, I just say to you, and again, I, you've probably gathered I'm interested in history, but you know, if you think of the strongest cities in the world, you know, leaving aside nations, but strongest cities in the world, the most successful cities in the world, they have all been truly multicultural cities. Rome at its height, Shanghai, Constantinople, Alexandria, Smyrna, take, you know, take your pick, New York, Sydney, Hong Kong. The strongest societies are those that are genuinely cosmopolitan and have a high degree of tolerance. Now, Richard Florida, of course, has written a lot about this. Some, I think he's you know, probably overdoes it a bit, but nonetheless, it's a very important point. So for us, 
that multiculturalism is actually a strength. There is no strength in homogeneity. There is strength in diversity. Right. Uh, the gentleman right at the back. Thank you very much. I'm sorry, I, you may have covered this just now and um, maybe before I arrived because I was very late. Um, From a speaker's point of view, it's better if people arrive late than leave early. <laughs> you and your um, the Prime Minister and the previous Prime Minister um, are all Republicans. I, I would like you to um, tell me how you feel that um, there is a future for um, Australia um, to become a republic um, in our lifetime. I'm the same age as you. Um, I would very much like to see Australia as a republic. Um, I would I would like you to, uh, if you can, explain a little bit more than you've just done. Okay. Happy to do so. Now, I, um, I have uh, what can fairly be described as a postdoctoral qualification in not changing the Australian Constitution. <laughs> uh, and it's a, the, for those, for the uninitiated, let me explain. To change the Australian Constitution, uh, you need to get a bill, you know, you know, a bill to amend the constitution passed by parliament, and then it has to be approved by a national majority of voters and in a majority of states, four out of the six states. Um, since federation, there have been 46 attempts to change the constitution, only eight have been successful, and indeed since 1946, the only changes to the constitution have been utterly uncontroversial ones, ones that either everybody agreed to or, more importantly, nobody opposed. Why is that? Why is it so hard? Well, it's hard because, I think, of compulsory voting. Um, if you were presented with a constitutional issue, say in a voluntary voting country, say the United States or Britain, and you had absolutely no interest in it, didn't understand it, not, not simply not understanding it, but didn't bother, weren't interested in it at all, you would be more likely to stay at home than go to the ballot box. But in Australia, we drag you to the ballot box and you have to vote, and if you don't, we fine you. So if you don't understand you the issue... You have to bribe people to go and vote, like no, they do in some countries? Uh, no, 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 we don't bribe people no. to vote. <laughs> uh, we, we punish them by with a fine if they don't. But, well, actually, that's, that, in fact, I'm glad you raised that, um, that uh, hopefully, um, jest, that jest, I hope. Uh, what, we, what we do, actually, we don't fine you if you don't vote. We fine you if you don't turn up to the bowling booth. So you've got, to, you've got to turn up and get a ballot paper, and you can spoil it. You can write, you know, down with politicians. Uh, uh, on it. You can do as one person did when I was a returning, when I was a university student, and we had a gigantic Senate paper. It was literally this long. It's huge. And uh, proportional representation. And someone had done the most beautiful freehand drawing of a donkey. Must have. <laughs> and that was all that was on it. And he wrote under it the ultimate donkey vote. 
This is in the 1974 federal election, and I said to the head of the polling booth, I said, look, oh, this is just, can I have this? And he said, do you have any idea how many years in jail you will do if you take this ballot paper away? <laughs> so, so I needless to say it was there and in accordance with the act destroyed. So that's a big, that makes it really hard. And the truth is, to get the constitution changed, you need to have very broad support and, in effect, not too much opposition. So um, what does that mean? It means you've got to get all the political moons in alignment. Um, I think the best opportunity for that, from a timing point of view, will now be after the end of the Queen's reign. I would be delighted if that was wrong. You know, I don't, I'm not... I, I said in 1999 to people, if you vote no, it'll be no for a long time. A lot of people saying, oh, we can vote no to this model and we'll get another chance in a couple of years' time. And I said, forget it. It'll be a very long time before you get another crack at this. I think I've been proved right on that. Uh, so I think the, the end of the Queen's reign will be such an enormous watershed. Uh, I think that will be the, the opportunity for a, uh, another vote at it. That's my view, but you know, others. This is other people disagree with that. Can we ask the gentleman with the red tie there? Um, I met him in a pub just behind the Royal Courts of Justice earlier. I, I think I'm going to give the lady a oh, chance. Oh, the lady, yes. And then the red tie. Yes, women should hold uh, up at least half. This is just probably more a bit of a comment as well as uh, as just asking for your opinion. You talk about China needs to be uh, recognise its leadership responsibly. Mm. I think is what you're saying, because they will rise, but they're not exactly exerting their, their systems on other people. Well, I don't, think, they, I don't think that China is not, this is where it's different from certainly the Soviet Union, and many people would say the United States. It does not seek to, mm. it is not saying every other country should have a system of government similar to ours. I guess my, this is a comment and a question at the same time. Equally, it can't ignore other people's wanting to want to go for, the, for a different system. I'm thinking more like how it uses its veto power right. at the uh, Security Council, in particular, like if the other day, the, about uh, the Syrian vote that they put up there. So my comment is, where do you see them being responsible in other countries and other countries asserting themselves? But China's refusal to either promote that, as they've clearly done, and how do you think they can move forward with this, going, you know, that they will become the next superpower? Well, I think, you know, in, in, um, the Chinese have become uh, active in multilateral organisations uh, in recent decades, and they have played a, you know, a a secondary role, I suppose, to uh, the United States and most of those organisations, and, and indeed other, you know, the other traditional great powers. But I think increasingly uh, China will seek to take a leading role. Now, that doesn't, you know, that's something that uh, China, and you know, far be it from me to, you know, lecture China about what they should do. But the Americans uh, have seen. You know, Bob Zelik famously said you know, that China must seek to be a responsible stakeholder. Uh, I think uh, the, if the United States finds itself unable to take the lead in important areas because of political um, division, uh, that will create an opportunity. Uh, and I think climate change policy, climate is a very obvious example, where China could, if it chose, take a leading 
role. Uh, you know, it's a, and that is, <clears throat> we will, you know, we will see. But this is, you know, I, I, I can't. All I can, all I can say to you, is that China and indeed India will have a capacity to take a leading role in world affairs that a, even a decade ago would have seemed most unlikely. They'll have that capacity. The extent to which they use it, the extent to which they use that constructively, of course that's a matter of opinion, uh, remains to be seen. But it's something that we all have to reflect on. These are momentous changes, without doubt. Um, first of all, Malcolm, can I endorse your, um, your sentiments around uh, running strong fiscal, um, fiscal surpluses? It's pretty clear to those of us who look at what happened with fiscal deficits in this country and the fiscal surpluses in Australia and which country avoided recession um, and the effects here that, um, that that policy is clearly the wisest. But my question refers to your comments about the Chinese currency and the competing, the competing interests of uh, increasing imbalances in the Chinese economy and driven by their current currency policy versus the industrial lobby. And I guess you'd add to that the clearly uh, strategic geopolitical reasons for mm. Chinese currency policy. But what do you see as the tipping point, tipping point yeah. for a change to Chinese policy? Um, you, you mentioned Bob Zellick's uh, invitation to China, but clearly that, that's been used for several years now without any success. Well, what will cause the Chinese government, do you think, well, to liberalise their currency policy? Yeah, well, I, I, I think it's probably the, the, the points that I, was, I mentioned in the talk about the impact on Chinese consumers. You know, it is a pretty raw deal if you are a Chinese household and you are getting negative real interest rates for your deposits. And you then say, OK, well, you know, that's not doing me any good, so I'll invest in real estate. And you've bought into a, a home unit development off the plan in Beijing, which is now down 40% from uh, what you paid for it. You'd be starting to feel that the system wasn't working for you. Um, you know, th th this is the difficulty when governments, you know, when governments meddle in this way and create, when I say meddle, make decisions to structure the economy in such a way that allow these imbalances uh, to be created. So I think that is, that's the, where the pressure is. Um, it, it's very important. I saw Mark Farber. Many of you may be familiar with him. He's the, you know, he's the ultimate bear, you know, the great... He's, you, know, he's, you get these uh, financial analysts who are either bulls or bears all the time, and they're like a clock that's stopped. You know, it's right twice a day. And so the person who's always got a bearish view of the market will be right when the market's going down, and then, you know, he, people don't talk to him when it's going up, so they forget that he's he's probably wrong. His analysis is wrong there. But Faber was saying the other day that oh, it doesn't matter all these ghost cities and huge airports being built, and you know, in cities which don't have much air traffic, it doesn't matter because they will grow into it. You know, rather like buying your you know, your burly six-year-old, <coughs> you know, an outfit that's, um, you know, the size of a 13-year-old, you assume you'll just grow into it. I, I'm pretty sceptical about that. You know, I, I, uh, despite uh, what you've identified as my Lansbury genes, um, I nonetheless believe that any uh, public investment that doesn't pass that cost-benefit analysis test, uh, in Ken Henry's words, negatively detracts from the nation's well-being. And so this is a, you know, this is a real, because this is a real problem. You've got, if you've got a billion dollars invested in infrastructure that in fact is worth $500 million, 
that obviously has issues uh, for the bank that lent the money, but it also, ha given that it's, it's, being, it's taking up the wealth of the nation, it diminishes the wealth of the nation. And I think that, that is the issue the government's trying, uh, trying to deal with. And, uh, but it's, but it's, a, you know, it is a, uh, it's a hard transition. Uh, the NPLs in Chinese banks, if properly assessed, I think would be gigantic. And if you're interested, those of you that are, you know, sort of interested in digging into this a bit longer, a bit further, there's a, an academic at Northwestern University called Victor Schur. In English, it's S-H-I-H, -H, so that's uh, how it's spelled. And he's really did groundbreaking work unpicking, unpacking the amount of government debt held by local government-owned, local, you know, prov provincial companies, owned companies, city-owned companies, the amount of debt that is allocated to them because it is, uh, it's truly gigantic. And the wicked thing about it, of course, is that it's being financed from households who are really getting a raw deal at the moment. You know, the Americans say that the Chinese policy is giving them a raw deal. It's Chinese households that are getting the worst end of the stick, in my judgment. And that, I think, Jason, is where the pressure will come for change. But it, you know, it makes more sense for critics of that policy in the West to point that out rather than just uh, be finger-pointing at, uh, at China. Picking up on your comments about the social contract in China, where the party is allowed to uh, the people endorse the party to rule while the party works to maintain or increase living standards. I'm interested in your views on how robust that uh, social contract is and picking up on your ministry, uh, shadow ministry responsibilities for communications and broadband. I'm also interested in, in any reflections you have on what role the internet might play domestically in China in, in shifting that paradigm. Well, uh, let, me, let me answer that uh, with a story. Um, in about 1994, I was looking at um, some gold projects in Liaoning, Liaoning and Shandong provinces. I didn't develop any of them, but I, the only mine I established there was a zinc mine in Hebei province, as I mentioned earlier. And I was in with the Geological Bureau in Shenyang, and uh, the director said to me, um, why don't you have a look at this Peshan Lo uh, project? And I said, but hang on, that, the Chinese government signed a joint venture with uh, Barrick, you know, the big mining, North American mining company. I saw it on TV, Li Peng was there and uh, Brian Mulroney was there, then the Canadian Prime Minister. Uh, I mean, that's done and dealt. And the head of the Geological Bureau said, no. He said, those guys in Beijing cut us out of the action. He said, they just thought they could do the deal, and we've said to them, we won't give them the geological data until we get a fair share. And I said, well, that's great. You know, knock yourself out, but if you think I'm getting in the middle of this, you know, let's move on to something else. And, uh, you know, and he, he used that other great, you know, Chinese expression, you know, the, the mountain is high and the emperor is far away. Uh, another wise insight. Um, anyway, some time later, the, the Canadians, the Barrett gave up. They couldn't get access to the data. 
and the mine was developed by the Liaoning government. So, you know, that's, now, that's just one little anecdote from my own experience. But China, is the central power is not nearly as strong as people think. Uh, and I think if China evolved into a democracy of some kind, it would be much more of a federal democracy than people imagine today. You know, and this, this of course, is a, this is a, a nightmare. As I say, the, a, not nightmare for me, but it's a nightmare for many Chinese because of this history, very recent history of incredible political instability. And it's hard for us to imagine that. I mean, if you, if you think, think about these extraordinary episodes in social disorder just over the last, you know, 40 years, uh, that's what's in the back of, the mind, of everyone's minds, and particularly in the back of the government. But the central government doesn't have that uh, uh, control that uh, you know, a lot of people imagine. Um, we've spoken a lot about uh, China today, and um, yeah. I'm just wondering what um, the Australian leadership's viewpoint is on Indonesia and whether there's a, a, sort of a, a need to create a strategic uh, relationship with the 300 million people who live on our doorstep. Well, the, the answer is the Australian uh, focus on Indonesia is very, is very intense and the relationship is very strong and has strengthened, uh, particularly under the current uh, president. So it's a, it's, it's a very important one. Again, I, I, you know, I prefaced my remarks by saying, you know, clearly you can't talk about every part of the region, but it is, it is uh, absolutely fundamental. It is our nearest neighbour. We have, um, uh, you know, there is a, there is a rather, there's a scratchy, there's a bit, has been scratchiness in the relationship and friction in the relationship. And um, again, you know, but, uh, with goodwill that can be overcome. And again, I'll tell you another story. I was there in um, 2007 at a press conference with a gentleman called Rahmat Wittler, who was then the Environment Minister, and I was the Environment Minister of Australia. And we had announced a program, a climate change program, to provide funding to support sustainable management of forests, you know, which is something that's eluded a lot of people in tropical countries. And, but the breakthrough we saw was the ability to use sa our satellite and radar assets to be able to monitor forests over a wide area so that you could designate a wide area, it might be an island or a province or part of a province, and say, OK, here's the deal. There are incentives to either maintain or increase the forested area win within this area. It can be monitored. So it's, no, it's not a... And because it's a wide area, you can't just, you know grow the trees in this valley and cut down the trees and all the remaining ones. So you can monitor it overall and then provide suitable incentives. And this, I think, is a very big, very important part of the whole climate change challenge. And so we're sitting there and a journalist says at the press conference to the, the Indonesian minister, Minister, isn't this just a way for the Australians to use their technology to spy on Indonesia? And I thought, oh no. This is all about to go completely pear-shaped. <laughs> and to his great credit, he just laughed and he said, oh, don't be ridiculous. He said, you can get onto Google and see me in my swimming pool in my backyard any day you like. Next question. Now, that, you know, that was an example of leadership, a bit of good humour, just 
stepping away from that scratchiness. So as long as in our relationship with Indonesia both of us take the glass half full approach, recognising there are tensions and you know frictions, I think uh, I think it'll just get it'll get uh, stronger. But you know above all, it is understanding what the other side thinks. You know the the message from the remarks you know today is. We're, you know, we're all in the same bed. There's many of us in this bed called the Asia-Pacific, and we all do have different dreams, but it's important to recognise what, that A, that the dreams are different, and B, have an insight into what they are. Because without that, uh, you'll have a lot of misunderstandings and consequently a lot of uh, friction. Hi. Um, you speak very elegantly about... Sorry, uh, could you just start again? I, I, you, you start again. Sorry, I just couldn't hear you. Oh, sorry. Um, you speak very elegantly about the potential for future uh, opportunities and partnerships with China. But as you yourself noted, um, there is a certain adversarial streak and a real fear of China, as you mentioned with the 2009 white paper, and uh, obviously where I'm from. Lot of fear about it, and I'm wondering if you could speak to the strategy of how you convince uh, people to sort of ratchet down these tensions and highlight the opportunities. Well, I think it's, as I said, I think it's very important to to have a cool analysis of these issues and not take sort of Cold War prejudices into, you know, the 21st century. That's very important. I think it's also um, important to recognise that China, as part of its rise, with a large coast, for example, talking about maritime power now, with a large coastline, uh, with um, global, global interests depending vitally on uh, global trade routes for all of their natural, you know, their, their imports and indeed their exports, is going to seek to have a more substantial you know, naval presence. Now the question is how is that, how is that managed? You know, one of the issues that I think both sides, and I think the Chinese side in, uh, is this is you know, an issue that China needs to address, is greater transparency so that there is a better understanding, for example, of what should happen if there is an encounter. What happens if you know, a, two submarines bump into each other? You know, what happens if a plane is in, you know, the wrong airspace? What happens if a warship runs over, a, you know, a sh another warship? All of these, all of these things, now with the Soviet Union, there were actually modalities to deal with that. People complain that in the military that there aren't, there isn't an adequate understanding with China in that regard. Now that's an opportunity, I think, for engagement. Again, the the, and there's an element of nuance here. I think that, that what when we talk about our own military presence in the region, and whether that's Australia or on a much vaster scale, the United States, we should talk about hedging against contingencies, which China understands, everyone understands, you know, but the unexpected, you know, one thing you know is the unexpected always happens and the inevitable rarely does. So, you know, I think it's one of Margaret Thatcher's favourite aphorisms. Uh, that's probably right. Uh, but by the same token, hedging is understood, but containment, you know, that 
containment, that term, is naturally very offensive because it was a term developed by George Kennan in that, you know, in the long telegram I referred to earlier to describe an approach to the Soviet Union which was overtly an expansionist missionary country that wanted to and was prepared to use military force to export uh, its ideology. Now, that's, China does not fall into that category. It's kind of warming up now with lots more questions, but uh, because we've run out of time, and in the interest of proportional representation, I'm just going to take last question from this lady. Uh, hello, excuse me, Mr. Malcolm. Um, my uh, <laughs> breaking English. Um, I am very worried about the idea of a war with um, China, and um, I'm very sorry about the last war. It was very bad for the German people um, and everybody else, of course. But this war, if it happens, and the Chinese are always expanding their armies, what would you advise the Western powers to counter these problems, these big problems? What psychological uh, counter could you possibly advise or imagine? Thank you very much. Well, I, look, I think that's a, that is a... Um that's a good question. Uh, uh, I think the the answer is that better understand you know understanding and insight into the other party's position, uh, making strategic decisions based on analysis rather than prejudice, uh, and looking above all when you examine what other parties' intentions might be. Looking, putting, being able to put yourself in the other party's shoes and assessing what their uh, approach may be and then bench testing that against the evidence. And I think that's what's led me to the uh, uh, conclusions that, I've, um, that I presented to you tonight. But thank you very much. And thank, well, thank you, thank you very much indeed. It's been a great pleasure to be here. Well, it's left for me to say a very um, thank you very much to Mr. Turnbull uh, for an interesting insight. And it's also very evident how much you actually understand China. And you obviously have a very um, lot of people here who are your supporters and admirers. We wish you the very best for your politics and your leadership in Australia. I'd also like to thank uh, some of the people who helped organizing this, Kevin Shields, Tara, um, conferences and also your office and the Australian Embassy who helped to liaise these things. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you.